You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, about a, about a year or so ago, Allison and I went to the Michael McDonald concert at Deepak. And really, we went to be with friends more than we did to go to the concert. I'm not a huge Michael McDonald fan. Was he, he was Doobie Brothers, right? Michael McDonald. So uh, imagine my surprise when I learned that Mark Cohn would be opening for Michael McDonald. For the uninformed, Mark Cohn is the walking in Memphis guy. And I love, love, love his music. True Companions, one of the great songs ever. Mark Cohn was the highlight of the night for Allison and me. Michael McDonald is a much-loved, a much-gifted artist, but we enjoyed Mark Cohn more. Now, that's not the case with most of the fans. They were there to see Michael McDonald. And Mark Cohn understood his role, uh, role, which was the warm of the crowd for Michael McDonald. He didn't try to assume the spotlight. He didn't try to make the big splash in fact, he came back and played later, but he, he had a specific role for being there. It wasn't his fault that Allison and I preferred the first portion, portion of the show, but we did. We just did. So I'll come back to that in just a moment. If this is your first Sunday at Grace, you should know that last week we began a series on the Gospel of John. That's why we had these, <clears throat> these journals for you to... Uh, Again, take notes in during the sermon or do your quiet time, whatever. We're going to spend three weeks total in the prologue or the first 18 verses of the first chapter. John's words in these 18 verses comprise a magnificent introduction to a gospel that will leave little room for doubt as to who Jesus claimed to be. Now, you may not... <clears throat> agree that Jesus was who he said he was, but it's hard to get through the Gospel of John, especially if you do it systematically like we're going to. It's hard to get through the Gospel of John and say, well, he didn't really. No, he didn't claim to be God. He didn't claim to be the Savior of the world. There will be little doubt after we read. Many of the major themes of John are first mentioned in this prologue over and over and over. could be saying, as he will say later. In fact, I did that last week. I'm doing it today. I'll do it next week. As he will say later and amplify the themes that are introduced in the prologue. <laughs> and so today, we will briefly encounter John the Baptist, not as a savior, not even, in, even as the opening act to Jesus, but as a forerunner to Christ and the kingdom of God, as prophesied in Isaiah, the baptizer will claim that himself in John 1.23. And we'll see that more in two or three weeks when um, we come to it. David will be preaching that Sunday in about three weeks, talking about John's role. John the Baptist is first up in our text today. Although he is in the prologue more for thematic reasons than for an accounting of his life. And we're going to discover as we go in John's gospel that John the Baptist resisted all temptation 
to receive to himself glory that belonged only to God. And look, there were a lot of voices saying, John, you are the man. You are the one that everybody needs to pay attention to and and appreciate and love and respect. Many of the people that we're going to encounter in John's gospel did not resist the temptation to be praised by men, but rather sought glory that belongs only to God. Remember many years ago, (laughs) I was a big fan when I was a young believer of Chuck Swindoll. I still appreciate so much of his ministry through the years, but I remember him saying something in one of his books that stuck with me all these years, and I need to be reminded of it time and again. We all do. Never expect or receive any glory that belongs to God. Never expect or receive any glory that belongs to God. So, <clears throat> we're going to read today about the, the, the distinction between Jesus and John the Baptist. I don't know why the Lord would lead us to consider this more carefully when none of us have the temptation to take glory to ourselves that belong to God. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you, I don't, I, I don't think you do either. I'm sure that we all struggle with these fleshly desires. And the temptations that assail us are exacerbated by access and participation in social media. It just, there is almost no way you can not glorify yourself if you're talking about almost anything on social media. But, let's just put that aside, right? Because... For our own good, the Lord would have us remove our eyes from ourselves and put the spotlight on Jesus. Although he doesn't need a spotlight because he is the light. Perhaps it would be more appropriate to say, keep your eyes on the light so that you will be able, like John the Baptist, to point others to the light. John the Baptist did not point to Jesus as an example. Here's an example you need. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He pointed to Jesus as the Savior of all who will repent and believe. John was the first one to come preaching this message of repentance. Repent. Be baptized. Follow. Yahweh, and then when Jesus came on the scene, he said, behold the Lamb of God. He didn't know what he... It's going to be evident that later John didn't really understand Jesus' role. He thought Jesus was going to come in power. And he was confused when he ended up in prison. So even though we will see John in action later in the first chapter, chapter, these Few verses in our text that identify John the Baptist as a pointer of people to Christ serve as an introduction to a man we should all desire to emulate. Not so much because he was a great man, although Jesus said he was the greatest who ever lived, except for the least of these. And interestingly, right when John the Baptist made his worst remarks about Jesus, Jesus made his best remarks about John the Baptist. Not so much as a man to emulate, but because he understood God's plan 
at that level, and he pointed people to Jesus. Our text today is John 1, verses 6 to 13, as we did last week, as we'll do today, and, or as we'll do next week, we'll also do today. We're going to read the entire prologue. It is our custom to stand out of respect for the scripture as it is being read, so if you would, please stand, and let's read John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. <clears throat> but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. It's a beautiful preview of what we're going to see next week. We have received all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God has made God the Father known. Let's pray. Our Father, these words are simple. They're written in a simple cadence. Simple grammar, simple vocabulary, profound beyond imagination. And although we'll never wrap our hearts and minds fully around this until sometime in eternity, Lord, there's much that you have graciously allowed us to understand. And so may our hearts of love grow for Jesus as we examine your word and may he be exalted in our midst. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. We are very confident. When I say we, I'm talking about the elders. But I think most of you would be in agreement with this. We're very confident that the author of the Gospel of John was the Apostle John. 
In fact, one of the early external witnesses we have to, to John's authorship of his gospel is one of the most uh, well-documented that we have. Irenaeus was the bishop of Lyon. Um, if you don't know Irenaeus, and I, I, I would guess at least half of you don't, probably a lot more than half of you don't know uh, this dude, but Irenaeus is one of the most important figures in all of church history. You may have heard of Athanasius, who in the 4th century fought against Arianism, which we addressed last week. Arianism is the idea that Jesus was not God, he was a God. <clears throat> the idea that Jesus was created, there was a time when he was not, was the heresy of Arianism. And Athanasius is one of the most important figures in all of church history. Gave us our under, the, he, he put to words our understanding that Jesus was divine. It's not that people didn't believe it before, they did believe it. It's just that nobody had to address that heresy. Well, there was a heresy that was uh, very much in full bloom in, 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 in the mid to late second century. It's uh, Gnosticism. And uh, Irenaeus was a stud in debating Gnostics and keeping the Orthodox Christian belief intact. So Irenaeus was the disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was a famous mid-second century martyr. You can read a lot about his martyrdom. It's very interesting. And, and Polycarp was the disciple of the Apostle John. Uh, John, disciple Polycarp. John lived late into the second century. He discipled Polycarp. Mid-second century, Polycarp was martyred as an old man. And, but Polycarp, before that, had had discipled, mentored Irenaeus. And Irenaeus talks about the gospel that John wrote from Ephesus. This will all make sense as we go, but just want you to understand some of these things. And even though most conservative scholars will tell you John was not fighting Gnosticism because Gnosticism was not fully advanced, Irenaeus used the writing of John, writings of John to fight Gnosticism in the late Second century. So, John wrote this account of Jesus' ministry and sacrificial death and resurrection. Most conservative scholars think, although there's not as much evidence as you would like to pinpoint a time, but most point to late second century, somewhere around AD 85 or 90. Although an argument can be made that John wrote before the Jerusalem temple was destroyed, in AD 70, and you may hear a little bit of that debate in a couple of weeks when our uh, elders have the panel that we're going to talk about this, uh, this prologue and talk about this gospel, this great gospel of John. And if that sounds strange to you, ask somebody who was here a couple of years ago when we, about a year and a half ago, when we did a series on the solas where we had elders participate in a panel. It's, it's, it's a very informative, helpful time. You'll understand the level of study that these guys put in because they understand their role as pastors and shepherds and those who are to know the word and communicate the word to the body of Christ. So, did John write before AD 70 or somewhere 85 to 90? I tend toward the latter date. 
though some conservative scholars go for an earlier date, but almost all conservative scholars agree that John, the Apostle John, wrote this book. He didn't call himself John. Uh, he called himself the beloved disciple. You may think, well, that sounds kind of arrogant. Uh, he's the disciple that Jesus loved. Again, we'll get to that when we come to it later on. But that wasn't as arrogant as it would be if we spoke in the third person, you know. So, um, of one of the internal evidences of his authorship, John's authorship, is that he refers to John the Baptist simply as John. The other writers talk about John the Baptist. Almost everybody agrees that John the Baptist's ministry is the beginning of the gospel being proclaimed to the world. Uh, so the uh, Apostle John and John the Baptist were the only two Johns that were close to Jesus. So therefore, it would be no need for John the Apostle to say John the Baptist. He just called him John. He wouldn't need to add the baptizer uh, to qualify who he was talking about. Well, what the Apostle John does do in his prologue is to draw a clear distinction between Jesus and a great man in the history not only of the church, not only of the covenant people of God, but a great man in the history of the world, John the Baptist. From the first century Jewish historian, Josephus, we learned that many first century Jews held John the Baptist in very high regard, while, not surprisingly, they viewed Jesus as the promoter, the... the, the, the um, Accused Jesus of one who started a false religion. So, John the Baptist good, Jesus not good at all. Perhaps this was on the Apostle John's mind when he drew the distinction between John the Baptist and Jesus. If we think, if as we think, John's gospel was one of the last documents of the New Testament to be written... The last word on John the Baptist was not critical, even though in prison he expressed doubt about Jesus' person. But Jesus didn't rebuke him. He just said, go tell John what you've seen. Everything that's said about me in the book of Isaiah, remember we did that not long ago in Isaiah, it all was pointing to me, and I've fulfilled all of these prophecies. I've done them all. And we're sure John came around because of Jesus' good words about John. Um, so, the last word on John in John the Baptist, in John, the Apostle John's gospel, is an extremely complimentary word, as we're going to see later in chapter 1 and in chapter 3. We know from Acts 19. Now, Remember last week I said there's just going to be some of this in these first three weeks. Setting the stage, laying the foundation. I'm very sorry if, it's, if it just feels too technical to you. But in, in Acts 19, uh, we're told that quite a few years after the Holy Spirit had come upon believers at Pentecost, there were disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus, which is where John the Apostle wrote his gospel in Ephesus. He was a pastor there. See his pastor's heart in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So there were these disciples of John the Baptist, and they were saying, this is what you need. If you want to be right with God, you need to have this baptism. One of the reasons, I think it's a whole other issue, that tongues is seen 
in Acts 19 is to confirm that the only, the only way to heaven, the only way to God the Father is through Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Christ, believing the gospel of Christ and placing your trust in Jesus that saves a person. So, um, as the Apostle John points out in his prologue, John the Baptist was nothing in comparison to Jesus because Jesus is beyond compare. John the Baptist was the perfect transition between Old Testament law and New Testament grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, which is why he finds himself uh, mentioned in this prologue. So John, like everyone else, was trying to understand God's magnificent plan Salvation for sinners. So that's why John the Baptist struggled when he found himself in prison. He had anticipated that Jesus at his first advent would come as he is prophesied to come in his second advent. We know that now, but John didn't know that. We get that there are two comings of Christ. Jesus comes to die, take, up, take on human flesh. He lays aside the privileges of his deity, not his deity, but he lays aside the privileges of his deity, becomes was one of us, 100% God, 100% human, lives this life, as David has already said, that we could not live, and died a death that we all deserved. And when he was resurrected, God said, it's done completely. Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, and that resurrection is a confirmation that God accepted the sacrifice as a payment for our sin. And it foreshadowed what's coming in the future. Well, John the Baptist didn't have all of that. He didn't have all of that understanding. So he's trying to figure it out. And got a little confused when he was arrested. So let me ask you a question. Do you think we sometimes take for granted our understanding of who Jesus was and is and why he came to earth? It took centuries for believers to put these in the words that we now, that roll so readily off our tongue. Well, of course, everybody believes that. A lot of people were struggling to get it just right. And we are the beneficiaries of those who did so much work. So, in the first century, some were still wondering about the role, the important role of John the Baptist. So, John the Apostle help bring clarity to their thinking, to their theology. Consider some of the contrast between Jesus and John the Baptist delineated in this prologue. Jesus pre-existed. John the Baptist appeared. He just was on, on the scene. Jesus was with God. John the Baptist was sent from God. Jesus was God. John the Baptist was a man. Jesus was the true light, John the Baptist, not the light. Very clear distinction made. So if John peppers the first eight verses of chapter 1 with a stark contrast between Jesus and one of the best people who, who ever lived, then verses 9 to 11 are filled with great irony. The, the true light came into the world, but the darkness rejected the light. It's the, it's the nature of darkness to fight against the light because when light is present, 
It is darkness that must retreat and eventually disappear. So if the darkness can just snuff out the light or keep people from seeing the light, Satan, we're told in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, has blinded the eyes of those who do not believe, lest they believe. And 2 Corinthians 4 talks about, and 5 talk, talk about the light of Christ. But when Satan has blinded our eyes, we can't see. Light came into the world, and as we'll be told in John 3.19, men love darkness rather than light. John the Baptist bore witness to the light, and his testimony was accepted, was rejected, I mean, because it exposed the wickedness and unbelief of his audience. It was only years later that it was convenient to say, well, John the Baptist was a lot better than Jesus. I mean, John the Baptist was just one of us, just saying, repent. He had his questions about Jesus, but that Jesus guy was, man, that was, what he was saying, that stuff's crazy. You don't believe that, do you? Well, John the Baptist bore witness to the light. The rejection of the light trends downward in our text. We saw last week that Jesus was the agent that God the Father used in creation. God the Father created the world through Jesus Christ. So, when man fell, he fell away from God into darkness. Now the creator has come into the world in our text. But the world doesn't know him because it chooses not to know. It does not want to know him. Even more tragic, he came specifically to his own chosen people, the covenant family of God, the nation of Israel. Israel but his own people rejected him. Why did Jesus come into a hostile world that would reject him so readily, so easily? To save some out of the world, of course. In fact, all who believe, all who believe are given the right to become children of God. Not just Jewish men and women would become children of God. They thought they already were the children of God. But all men and women, both Jews and Gentiles, would then be related to God. For John to reference those who received Jesus indicates that not everyone rejected the light. A lot of people rejected the light, but some received and will continue to receive Jesus. Those who believed in his name were given the right or the, the authority or the status of becoming children of God. If you're in a home group, you're going to discuss this in a lot more detail this week. For John to use the word children of God rather than sons of God is quite significant. He puts an emphasis on the community of nature, as in we are made partakers of the divine nature in 2 Peter 1.4. These are deep waters that we're in. When we get to John 17, we're going to explore some, 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 some things in Jesus' prayer for us. For those who will believe, not only for the disciples, but for all those who will believe, that are, all, that are frankly mind-blowing. We are called into community with God and also to community with one another, but that's not the community he's really referring to here. 
We are children of God. Rightly, properly related to him. Our relationship with God is supernatural. And there are grace-filled grace -filled implications for those who believe. In verse 12, all who hear the gospel are urged to respond. More specifically, the Apostle John is urging his audience to believe even though he is stating facts. He's going to say, here's the story. Now, this is who Jesus was. This is who Jesus is. Believe. And yet in John 1.13, we are told that salvation is entirely of the Lord. Being born into the family of God as a child of God, or as Jesus will say to Nicodemus, you must be born again, is of God. It's not of blood or physical birth. We associate physical birth with water. The ancients associated physical birth with blood. That's going to have an impact in John 3 when we get to it. The will of the flesh points to sexual desire, but not an ungodly sexual desire. The will of man is literally the will of the husband. John seeks to destroy the notion that anyone deserves grace, whether Jew or Gentile, whether born into a Christian family or not, whether American or Part of, a fam uh, part of a group of people that has been the most oppressed since time began. Nothing gives us the right to be a child of God until we hear the message and believe. The Apostle John will say in the third chapter that those who do not believe are already under condemnation. We don't move into condemnation. We're in condemnation and under condemnation. Because of our sin and unless the Lord removes us and puts us into the family of God. Unless he adopts us as his children through our repentance and faith. We remain under condemnation. There is no light apart from Jesus. All scripture points to him. Therefore believe. Put your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. But what does that mean? Believe. If I ask you to define belief, what would you say it? What would you say it means? That was the question that once answered led Jim McLaughlin to faith. Uh, I've asked Jim, who is an elder and founding member of Grace Community Church, to come and share his testimony. And that includes his discovery of what it means to believe. And as Jim comes, I will just tell you that on Wednesday night, we're having Grace Matters where we're going to talk about the founding of the church. And Jim was one of the founders, Jim and Diane, some of the founding members. And they're going to share how this church came into being. So be here Wednesday night. I warned Brad about this, putting me in the pulpit. But it's only 11.04. My assignment, uh, Brad called me on Friday, and I decided to accept this assignment 
briefly talk about how God, through the Holy Spirit, revealed his truth to me in my living room in, on Oak Tree Drive in Macon, Georgia in 1979. I was 33 years old. Do the math, that makes me 72 today. <laughs> As a brief, brief background, uh, Diane and I were members of a Baptist church in Macon, and uh, I had taught a college Bible class, uh, and we had friends in the church, and there was a couple in the church named Skeet, good southern name, Skeet and Linda McCurdy, and they uh, were fruit inspectors, and they kept inspecting us, and they came up with, maybe they don't know Jesus, maybe. And they invited us to a couple's Bible study. And uh, when they first invited us to the couple's Bible study, I was thinking, I, I don't want to do this. I mean, after all, I go to church on Sunday and occasionally go to Wednesday night supper. You know, Baptists have Wednesday night suppers. And they asked us two or three times, and finally, she who must be obeyed, that would be Diane, <laughs> uh, said, I think we ought to go. And of course, I said, Okay. And we went, and it was held at a friend's house named Tommy Kendrick Holmes, a lawyer in Macon, a friend of mine. He and his wife, Joanne, hosted this every week. And it was about 12, 13, 14 couples from different backgrounds, about half charismatic people, actually, uh, and half uh, Presbyterian and Baptist and Methodist people. Uh, and we went, and they were finishing up their study, one-year study of the book of John. And that night, they... they they rotated the teaching around among the men, and one of the men was teaching, and I was looking around, and I, I knew some of these men. Paul Cable, I said, what's he doing here? Wesley Walker, what's he doing here? Uh, well, what Wesley and Paul and some other men that I knew were doing there is that they had become believers, and I had known them when they were not believers, and they had known me, and we had done things together, things we're not proud of. But I noticed that night they were all flipping around the, the Bible, they knew where every book was. If somebody said Ezekiel, boom, they're all there in Ezekiel. You know, I'm, I'm going, where is that? I looked at a table of contents trying to find a page number. And it was embarrassing, right? You know, a bunch of people are having a Bible drill, and you don't even know where the, where the books are. Well, that night, uh, at the end of the, the study, Paul Cable prayed. And in his prayer, he actually thanked God that Diane and Jim were there. Wow, nobody's ever thanked God for me being present. <laughs> and it was quite, it was quite eye-opening, actually. The love of Christ was all over that place that night. Uh, I decided, I wonder why I would decide that next week when we go to the Bible study at Tommy Kendrick's home's house, I'm not going to be the dumbest guy in the room. What would cause me that to do that? Uh, could that be that what goes before the fall? And my pride made me go across the street to the first Presbyterian church in Macon, Georgia, across from my law office, and walk into the bookstore and ask the lady operating the bookstore, do you have a good commentary on the book of Romans? We were going to start Romans the next week. 
and I was going to be the smartest guy in the room next week. And she said, well, we've got this commentary by Charles Hodge on, on Romans. I said, is it good? She says, it's the best. I said, I'll buy it, and you can see. I bought it. Here it is. And I, I get home at night, and I start reading, and I was, and of course, I don't really particularly recommend this to most This thing is deep, you know. But uh, I got into it, and I got down to Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of, of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I'm studying this, and I'm thinking, okay, I believe, because I believe that, and this, you know, after all, I'm a good Baptist. I mean, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I believe that he came to earth in the flesh. I believe that while he was here, he committed, uh, he performed many, many miracles. I believe that he was God. I believe that he was crucified on the cross. I believe that he was raised from the dead. And I believe that he appeared to hundreds of people after he raised from the dead. And I believed that he had ascended into heaven and was sitting at the right hand of God the Father. So I said, I read that. I'm good, right? No. I believed it right here. I believed the facts. I had the knowledge. So I got to read, thought about this. First, before we talk about Romans 1, 16 and 17, which, you know, uh, Brad could preach a year on Romans 16 and 17 just through, because of his introductions. <laughs> I want to read this quote from James Montgomery Boyce. He says, in the 16th and 17th verses of Romans 1, we come to, to sentences that are the most important in the letter and perhaps in all literature. They are the theme of this epistle and the essence of Christianity. I have an observation on that. I certainly agree with Dr. Boyce. After all, this is where I came to know Jesus, right here in Romans 1.16. But I immediately thought of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I thought of 1 Peter 8, 1, 8, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And then today we looked at John 1, 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in him, he gave the right to be children of God. See, that word believe is important. <laughs> and while we could teach on Romans 1, 17 and 18, uh, 16 and 17 for months or maybe years. Let's focus on what God revealed to me one night in my living room in Macon, Georgia, 1979. I got to verse 16, and I thought that, well, I believe, so I'm good. And as I studied, God was saying, not so fast, smart guy. Because I thought I was smart, believe me. Hodge explains the meaning of that word, believe, in the Greek, in two plus pages. I read that explanation and discovered by the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. 
that I'd never truly believed. Listen to this quote from Hodge. He explained in excruciating detail the different forms of the word believe in the scriptures. In an explanation less long, he explains it to mean much, much more than intellectual assent. Oh, I had the intellectual assent in spades, of course. And I tell you what I believed. But look at this quote. That faith, he's talking about he's in verse 17, which refers to that faith. That faith, therefore, which is connected with salvation includes knowledge. I had that. That is, a perception of the truth. I had that. And its qualities. Assent, or the persuasion of the truth of the object of faith. And trust, or reliance. The exercise or state of mind expressed by the word faith as used in the scriptures is not mere assent or mere trust. It is the intelligent perception, reception, and reliance on the truth as revealed in the gospel. And I read that, and I was overwhelmed. Hodge is saying this belief includes more than knowledge, more than assent, but reliance, trust, Confidence, absolute confidence in the object of the belief, which is our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, Brad and I were talking yesterday, and he wanted to talk about uh, Paul Anderson's story about the stool. You're going to talk about it in home group. I got a thing that I like to use is, there's a place in North Georgia called Tallulah Gorge. And it's deep. In fact, as far as, if you're from Georgia, it is the Grand Canyon. What the heck? <laughs> right? Well, Arizona's got nothing on us. <laughs> and don't remember the name of the tight rope artist that came to Tallulah Gorge and was going to walk across the gorge on a cable about that big around. But thousands of people showed up, and we call him the Great Zambini. Sounds like a good name for a tightrope walker. And he walked, people, thousands of people on both sides of Tallulah Gorge that day, and he walked across, they were cheering, and he got across the other side, and everybody just went, just cheered and applauded and praised the great Zambini. And then he looked at the crowd on that side that he just reached, and he says, he looked at the crowd and he said, do y'all, I think the great Zambini probably would not have said y'all, but he was in Georgia, so. <laughs> do y'all believe I can walk back across again? Oh, yeah, you can do it. You're the great Zambini. After all, who, who, you, if anybody can, you can. And he looked one man in the face who was saying, you can do it. And the great Zambini looked at him and said, get on my shoulders and we'll go together. Uh -uh. Didn't believe it that much. <laughs> That's where a lot of us are. Where I certainly was. You know, there are two kinds of unbelievers. The Madeline Murrow Harris of the world who are openly hostile to anything about God. They don't believe in God. They're mad at you if you do believe in God. They hate you if you believe in God. And then there are those like Diane and Jim McLaughlin who were members of a Baptist church in Macon, Georgia, who believed in God, who had the intellectual assent, but we didn't know God. 
We didn't really believe. Until that night, I was studying. I fell on my face, literally cried, God forgive me, I'm a sinner. Didn't say anything to Diane. I didn't really know what was going on. She didn't say anything to me. We went, kept going to that couple's Bible study. And about three weeks later, we got in the car that Sunday morning to drive to Highland Hills Baptist Church. She looked at me, and I looked at her, and I was thinking, boy, she's pretty, isn't she? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And she said, yeah. We have to go, you know, the Baptist, you go down the aisle. You can't be saved without going down the aisle of Baptist Church. <laughs> so we went down, told Jim Bruner, our pastor, we want to rededicate our lives to Christ. And what we were really doing was getting saved because we truly believed. And my question today is, do you believe? I mean, do you really believe? So that is the question. It's the question that John asked week after week after week after week, ever how many weeks you study, ever how many introductions there are. To the Gospel of John, you're going to be confronted with the same question every week. Do you believe? In just a few moments, we're going to uh, pray, and as I pray, the worship team is going to come up, and then we're going to take a benevolence offering, which we do on the last Sunday of every month, where we give to help those who are in need. And a lot of people think it's the participation in those kinds of offerings and activities and events that qualifies them to stand before God and say, you know, I was a pretty good person. It's not about that. We do it out of a heart of gratitude for the one who gave what only he was qualified to give, but did not have to, but did anyway. Jesus gave all for us. So the question is, do you believe is your faith in Christ? One other thing, since Jim brought this up. It's important that you understand if you do come from a Baptist church and you wonder why do you not have invitations here at Grace every once in a blue moon, but it's been years since we have. It's a relatively recent thing in church history, just the last couple of hundred years. And actually, it was almost initiated to drum up business when things were going south a little bit. So if, if you don't believe no matter, you can jump through every hoop imaginable. And not know Christ. If you put your faith and your trust in him. If you put everything you are. You give him your whole life. That's why we talk about repentance and faith. As the scripture does. But you can't just say. Oh yeah. That's cool. That's really great. Jesus died for me. I believe that. Everything's good. No. When you come to Christ. You come with everything. We're going to talk about this in a few weeks. Jesus never had um, training in uh, seeker sensitive ministry he never had cultural sensitivity training he, he, he just was like what are you doing here you really going to follow me really pretty high cost 
It is a high cost. But when you understand the gospel, and you're broken like Jim talked about, and Jim and Diane both getting saved separately at the same time. What a God. When you're broken, almost certainly you will believe. You'll put your faith in Christ. Maybe you're here, and you've been here for a little bit, and you're thinking, I don't know. I don't know. There's something missing in my life, and I think there's something here. I just don't know. It's Jesus. That's all it is. It's Jesus. He's the one. So as we sing in a few minutes, and as the offering, is, is, the offering plate is passed, just let it go right by you. If you need to do business with the Lord, you do business with the Lord. If you're already saved, put the money in the, in the, in the offering. And it's not for our church. It's for members of our church, and it's for those outside. But again, from a heart of gratitude. Let's pray. Jim said that when the truth finally dawned on him, he fell on his face in repentance. And he cried out, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And he just threw himself on Christ. We're going to see it later in John. Where, where, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. I believe in Jesus. So if you have never trusted Christ, in your heart, cry out right now. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that you are helpless and hopeless without Jesus, but believe that he died in your place. He will save you. Our Father, we know who we are. We know what we deserve. Our hearts are humbled this morning. In so many ways, on so many levels. Thank you for speaking the truth of the gospel through your word and through the words of your servant who has shared what it means to believe. Lord, I pray that you would give faith to those you are calling to believe. Men and women, boys and girls, would be born again and know Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.